Chapter Twenty Four of Peccavi by E. W. Horning. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Glamour and Rue. Georgie's lady was meanwhile enjoying her life in Leipzig, and the more keenly since she had gone abroad without any thought of pleasure, but only to work. This was characteristic of Gwyneth Gleed. She was not light-hearted enough for a young girl. There had been too much sorrow in her early years too little sympathy in those that came after, natural joy she had never known. A born delight in books, a blind appreciation of the country, a passion for music, and the love of one little child. These were the pleasures of Gwyneth in her twentieth year, nor as yet did they include that zest in the present, that joy of merely living, that healthy appetite for admiration, that proper pride in one's own person, that catholicity of liking for one's fellow-creatures, which are the very spirit and essence of youth. And to youth Gwyneth added something at least akin to beauty, but never knew it until she came to live among strangers in a strange land. These strangers, who were mostly English, and many of them young students like herself at the Conservatoire, were singularly kind to Gwyneth from the first. In some ways they were the best friends the girl ever had. They taught her the duty of gaiety at her time of life, and the absolute necessity of a certain amount of vanity in every human being. Gwyneth was given to understand that she had more to be vain about than most. Attracted themselves by the uncommon girl, with the fine eyes and the shy manner, her new friends did much to mitigate the latter by making the very most of her looks and accomplishments and seeing to it that Gwyneth did the same. She was not allowed to dress as she liked in Leipzig, nor to spend the whole of a fine afternoon at her piano, nor to be out of anything that was going on. The gaieties of the English colony were of a simple character in themselves, but they were Gwyneth's high-water mark in dissipation, and ere long she was throwing herself into them with that enthusiasm which she brought to every pursuit. She had learned to waltz remarkably well, and to talk brightly about nothing in particular to the acquaintance of a minute's standing. She was none the less assiduous at her practising at her harmony, and was still capable of immediate and immense excitement over this poet or that composer, but these were no longer her only topics. Nor was a Holland pinafore and the small urchin it contained entirely forgotten in these days. Gwyneth wrote to Georgie oftener than to anybody else in England, and yet it was to the theatres and a real ball or so that she first looked forward upon her return. Lady Gleed was much more than agreeably disappointed in the new Gwyneth. Herself incapable of seeing beneath the thinnest surface, she could scarcely believe it was the same girl. Gwyneth was better looking and had more to say for herself than had ever appeared possible to Lady Gleed who decided to keep her niece in town for the rest of the season, if not to present so creditable a debutante at the next drawing-room. And a much more critical person, her son Sidney, coming up from Cambridge for a night, was not less favourably impressed. Gleed of Trinity, a third-year man, was in his turn a vast improvement upon the private scholar who had seldom addressed a syllable to Gwyneth in his holidays, but had gone past whistling with his dogs. 
He was now a really handsome little man, with a clear brown skin and a moustache as mature as his manner. Looked and spoke like a man of thirty, and could be amusing enough with his sly satire and his ready repartee. Cynical this youth must always be, but the cynicism was more good-humoured and less ill-natured than formerly, and not abhorrent in the man as it had been in the boy. At all events it amused Gwynneth, who was furthermore surprised and excited to find that Sidney had read quite a number of great books, and rather entertained than otherwise by his blasphemous opinions of many of them. So they had something in common after all, and Sidney was certainly very attentive and gay and nice-looking. It was in the drawing-room in Hyde Park Place, during an hour which went very quickly, that Gwynneth made these discoveries. She was still too simple to remark, much less read, the calculating droop of Sidney's eyelids, or the veiled preoccupation of the hereditary stare. "'I wonder if you'd care to have a look at Cambridge,' at last said Sidney, in the purely speculative tone. "'Like to? I'd love it!' cried Gwynneth at once. Sidney paused without relaxing his stare. She was certainly very animated. Sidney was not sure that he cared for quite so much animation, with so little cause. "'I shouldn't wonder if you did rather like it,' he proceeded, in May week, which never is in May, you know. "'Oh, when is it?' "'The week after next. There'll be heaps going on. Races every afternoon.' "'And don't you steer your boat?' interrupted Gwynneth a partisan on the spot. Sidney smiled. I cox it, Gwynneth, and if we aren't head of the river we shall be not very far off. But it isn't only the races. There are all sorts of other things, a good match, garden parties galore, and a dance every night. You dance there? Yes, said Sidney. Do you? Rather. Get some in Leipzig? All that there was to get. They dance well out there? I don't know. But you do, of course. Gwynneth saw the drift of this examination, and showed that she saw it, but Sidney liked her the better for her dry reply. You'd better try me. You'd better try me, he rejoined adroitly. Very well, said Gwynneth. Here? Come on, said Sidney, his eyes sparkling, his brown skin a warmer hue, and in an instant they were threading their way between the cumbrous chairs and tiny tables of the big room, ploughing through its heavy pile, he in patent leather boots, she in her walking shoes, and not so much as a piano organ in the street to set the time. Yet even under these conditions a turn was enough for Sidney, though he did not want to stop, and was very quick in asking whether he would do. "'You know you will,' said Gwynneth, forgetting everything in the prospect of so excellent a partner. "'And you dance rippingly,' declared her cousin. "'By Jove, I wish we could have had you at the first Trinity Ball.' So did Gwynneth, but instead of betraying further eagerness, sat down at the piano, and saying it was nothing without the music, forthwith treated Sidney to snatch after snatch of the waltzes of the hour, rendering each with a brilliance of touch and a delicacy of execution alike worthy of a better cause. A year ago, Gwynneth would not so have done this. Sidney, his hands in his pockets, but a sparkle still in his eyes, stood watching her without a word until the end. 
"'Look here,' he then announced. "'You've simply got to come, and that's all about it. "'Of course the mater couldn't get away, "'but Lydia isn't so full up, "'and I should think she'd jump at it. "'I'll write to her and fix it up. "'There's a piano in our rooms, "'and we'll have it tuned for you. "'No, we'll get a grand in for the week, "'and the whole court will be full of men listening.' "'Who are we?' inquired Gwyneth. "'Oh, I share rooms with another fellow, an Eton man. You'll like him.' And once more Sidney looked a little critically at his cousin, as though he wanted to be quite sure that the Eton man would like her. But at this moment the dressing-gong threw him into consternation. It appeared that he was dining out at some club, had come up for this dinner, was only sleeping in the house, and would be gone first thing in the morning. So he had better say good-bye, and did so with rather unnecessary warmth, Gwyneth thought. Nevertheless, it was the dullest evening she had yet spent in Hyde Park Place, though there was a little dinner-party there also, after which the inevitable performance by Gwyneth was received with the customary acclamation. It may be supposed that the girl was not enchanted with the prospect of Lydia for chaperone, but she determined thus early to allow nothing to interfere with her enjoyment of the Cambridge festivities. So, when Mrs. Goldstein came in her carriage the next day but one, to say that she supposed they must go, not that she was keen upon it herself, but to please Sidney, and also because she thought it only right for young girls like Gwyneth to have a good time while they could, the latter tried to seem as grateful as though every word of Lydia's did not irritate or repel her. She there and then received dictatorial instructions as to dresses requisite for the week, and undertook to follow them to the letter. It was not a congenial attitude for Gwyneth to assume, but she also was at present bent upon that good time which her cousin recommended. Lydia, on the other hand, cultivated the air of one who has personally passed all that. She seldom smiled, but yet had a certain secret fondness for excitement. Gwyneth feared that she was far from happy. She seemed dissatisfied with her position in society, and spoke disrespectfully, when she did speak, of the dark, dapper, capable man or business, her indulgent husband. There came a time when Gwyneth Gleed would have given much to forget the merriest week of her life, but the memory of the next few days was not to be destroyed. The girl never forgot the narrow streets teeming with exuberant youth, the narrow river in similar case, the crush and rush and uproar on the banks, the procession of boats flashing past, each with an eight in which Gwyneth took no interest, but a ninth who had this always the same calm, brown, clean-cut face in her mind's eye. How well he looked swinging with his crew, he in his blazer, cool and malicious, doing his part with splendid precision, if only they did theirs. One night they made their bump right opposite the boat in which Gwyneth stood on tiptoe, and Sidney's smile at the supreme moment was one of her vivid recollections, and her little scene with Lydia another, which she brought upon herself by cheering as loud as any of the men. Sidney seemed very popular. Gwyneth was so proud to be seen with him, and especially when he wore his battered mortarboard and blue gown, which appealed in some foolish way to her own vague intellectual aspirations. And she looked down upon all the gowns that were not blue. 
but everything in Cambridge did appeal to Gwynneth, from the anthem and the chancel roof in King's Chapel to luncheon with Sidney and the Eton man in Old Court. Lydia was forever reproving her cousin's enthusiasm, but Gwynneth was enjoying herself too much to resent anything that Mrs. Goldstein could say. At the outset, however, a close observer might have caught even Sidney with a cock-eyed eyebrow and the eye beneath upon the Eton man. The girl was so frank and unsophisticated in the display of her delight, but the Eton man seemed to admire it in her, and Sidney gave up looking like that. The Eton man was twice his height, could sing, and swore that nobody had ever played his accompaniments as Gwynneth did, but he was not in any boat, and he could not compare with Sidney as a partner. Nevertheless, his attentions and attractions had more to answer for than anybody knew. Gwynneth had thought Sidney very nice in town, but at Cambridge he was perfect. He was a thorough little man of the world, unconscious, unconcerned, whereas many of the men whom Gwynneth met were scarcely worthy of the name. Sidney did things like a prince, having an enviable allowance, and a very good idea of the way in which things should be done. And his arrangements were masterly, no day like the last or next, and the whole a whirl of gaiety and excitement literally intoxicating to one whose experience of this kind was so limited as poor Gwynneth's. It all ended with the first Trinity Ball. There is no need to dilate on the astonishing magnificence of this revel. It was the most memorable and splendid of them all, and the backs by night, with a moon in the heaven above and another in the water below, and grey old gables salient in its light, and the guards band in the faint distance that ought to have been so loud and near, all this was even more entrancing than the ball itself and Gwynneth moved as in a dream. She had had the audacity to divide her dances between Sidney and the Eton man, but one of them was given cause to complain towards the end, and the more so since the girl had never looked so radiant in her life. The next day Gwynneth and Lydia, who would not speak to her, were to return to town. It had never been arranged that Sidney was to accompany them, yet he did, and before evening there was trouble in Hyde Park Place. Sir Wilton would not hear of it at first. He was soon obliged to do that. But he stood firm in refusing his consent to a formal engagement between Sidney and his first cousin, and found an unexpected ally in Gwynneth herself. The girl was paying for her week's delirium by a deeper depression than her face betrayed or her heart admitted. Already she was beginning to disappoint her cousin. But this was too much. "'You agree with him?' gasped Sidney. "'You'd rather not be engaged? Then why, my darling, did you ever say yes?' "'It wasn't to that question, dear,' said Gwynneth, colouring. "'It amounted to the same thing.' "'It will amount to the same thing,' Gwynneth said earnestly. "'At least I hope and pray that it may.' But of course it's quite true that we're both very young, and at least it's within the bounds of possibility that one or other of us might some day change. Speak for yourself, said Sidney, with a taunting bitterness. Dear, if you'll believe me, I'm thinking quite as much of you. At twenty-two you would tie yourself for life. That's my lookout, said Sidney grandly. 
Age isn't everything, and I'm not a boy. Anyhow, I know my own mind, if you don't know yours. Gwyneth's eyes filled with tears. Oh, why did you tell me you cared for me, she exclaimed. Why did you make me say I cared for you? It was true, it was true, but we seem to have spoilt it by putting it into words. Oh, I was so happy before you spoke. I was never so happy as all last week. I could have gone on like that. I was so happy. And now it's all different already. You are, and I am. Sidney was watching her tears unmoved, for she had made him reflect. All at once he saw his heartlessness, and the next moment he was kissing her tears away, vowing there was no difference in him. But if it was otherwise with her, well, then let them consider everything unsaid and start afresh. Gwyneth shook her head. Her eyes were dry again and full of thought. No, dear, we can't do that, and you mustn't think I am not happy in your love, because I am. Only there seemed to be such a spell between us before we were sure of each other. But perhaps it's always like that. In the end they were engaged, but it was not to be a public engagement for six months. Meanwhile Sidney returned to Cambridge for the long, having taken only a part of his degree, and Gwyneth quickly recovered her reputation as a reformed character in the eyes of Lady Gleed, who was less against the match than her husband, and who took the girl to innumerable parties, each of which Gwyneth made a determined effort to enjoy as thoroughly as the first half of the first Trinity Ball. She seemed always in the highest spirits, and there was no one about her who knew her well enough to know also that this perpetual brightness was hard and unnatural in Gwyneth. Closer observers than Sir Wilton and his wife might indeed have suspected as much, but there was only one occasion upon which Gwyneth betrayed the livelier symptoms of a troubled spirit. This was on her birthday at the beginning of July. Upon the breakfast-table was a registered packet with the Cambridge postmark, and in its Morocco case Gwyneth presently beheld a richer necklace than she had ever dreamt of possessing as her own. Yet the look in her face was so strange that Lady Gleed was obliged to speak. "'Don't you like pearls, my dear?' "'Oh, yes, oh, yes.' "'But you don't look pleased.' "'No more I am.' And she rushed from the room in unaccountable tears, and upstairs to her own, where she was presently discovered writing a letter at top speed, and crying bitterly as she wrote it. It was Lady Gleed herself who discovered her. "'What is the matter, Gwyneth?' "'I am writing to Sidney. I cannot take such presents from him. I am writing to tell him why.' "'I think you are very silly,' said Lady Gleed. "'But your uncle wants to see you in his study. That is really why I came up. And I don't think you'll be so silly when you have heard what he has to tell you.' There was an air of mystery about Lady Gleed, who furthermore kissed Gwyneth before they separated on the landing. The girl went downstairs with chill forebodings. Sir Wilton was seated at his massive desk, but rose fussily as she entered, and wheeled up a chair with almost excessive courtesy. Gwyneth had seldom seen him looking so benign. "'I sent for you,' said Sir Wilton, resuming his own seat, 
because I have some news for you, Gwyneth, which I am sure you will be as glad to hear as I am to communicate it. It is against the law to dwell upon a lady's age, but at yours I think you can afford to forgive me. I believe that you are twenty-one today? Gwyneth had not thought of that before, and at the present moment she could scarcely believe she was no more. She made her admission with a sigh. Then for twenty-one years, pursued Sir Wilton Beaming, or let us say for as many of them as you can remember, you have, I presume, looked upon yourself as an entirely penniless young lady? That has not been the case. At least it is the case no longer. I, I hope I am not giving you bad news. Gwyneth was trembling all over. She had lost every vestige of colour. My mother, she gasped, why did she never know? Because under the terms of your grandfather's will, nobody but myself was to know anything at all about it until today. It was cruel, cried the girl in a breaking voice. It might have kept her here. It makes me not want to hear anything now. But of course I must... Forgive me, please. My dear child, said Sir Wilton kindly, it is natural enough that you should feel that. I can only ask you to believe that I at least had no choice in the matter. And there were reasons. It is too painful to go into them. Your father was my brother, and I had rather say no more. I, for my part, was obliged to fulfil the conditions. I have tried to do my duty. I would gladly have done more, but your dear mother was the most independent woman I ever met. I honoured her for it. But what could I do? I must beg of you, my dear, to look upon the bright side, and believe me, this business has the very brightest side it is possible to imagine. Gwyneth did her best. It was fine to be independent in her turn, but the thought of her mother made her ashamed to touch a penny, and it was a matter of several thousand pounds, invested all these years at compound interest, yet with that absolute safety which distinguished the financial operations of Sir Wilton Gleed. Sir Wilton could not say offhand what the present capital would yield if left where it was at simple interest, but he fancied it would work out at seven or eight hundred a year at the very least. And these figures, which sounded fabulous to poor Gwyneth, were obviously in themselves the bright side upon which her uncle had harped. Yet he continued to beam as though there was something more to come, and looked so knowing that Gwyneth was obliged to ask him what it was. "'Can't you see?' he said. "'Can't you see?' "'It is an immense amount of money. I can't see beyond that.' You heard me say that nobody knew anything at all about it except myself, and, of course, my solicitors? Yes. Even your aunt did not know until I told her just now. Indeed. And Sidney won't know until you tell him. Then Gwyneth saw. Sir Wilton took care that she should. He did not on principle approve of marriages between cousins. He said so frankly. He might be wrong. But there was one thing which made him very proud of his son's choice. And this was that thing. There were others also upon which Sir Wilton touched with much playful gallantry. But perhaps, said he, you won't have anything more to say to the poor lad now. End of chapter 24